podcast time. Let's do it. Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we're having a joyful experience. Today, we're talking about comic 3.5, The After Kegster, which was originally posted on June 24th, 2016. I am Secret, and today I am joined by Riverdale superfan, Amado. I don't know why I said my name like that. I was just filled with the Riverdale juice of passion and dark drama and tragedy. Exactly the right energy to bring to a Check Please podcast. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about works of really similar quality here, so. Exactly. They're both genius. Do you want to tell me what happens in the after kegster? What, what in fact, happens after the kegster? Biddy and Jack. Canoodle, Ngozi's word, upstairs in Biddy's room during the first kegster of the school year. Each one has apparently been ferreting each other's clothing away, and Jack has developed a secret Biddy shorts addiction. Biddy returns Jack's hat much more normally. Meanwhile, Shitty regales the rest of Samuel Men's Hockey with Tales of Terror Law School Edition before accusing Jack of having a secret girlfriend. Jack tells Shitty he, in fact, isn't dating anyone, while Biddy's eyes grow bigger and sadder behind Jack's back due to the whole secret boyfriend situation. Shitty continues his tirade, eventually bursting into tears after accusing Jack of having no other friends. Biddy washes dishes in the house kitchen after the party has ended. In the background, Ransom and Holster discuss the likelihood that Jack does have a secret girlfriend and conclude that he can't. After all, God keeps a lot of things to himself, but it's never been the chicks he's wheeling. One of my favorite strips in the entire series, like, oh, it's so delicious. I'm so excited to get into it. It occurred to me upon rereading it this time, you know, a whole MFA later or whatever, that the comic structure is bananas it is narratively purposeful like there's reasons that we see these three sections but uh, as far as time transitions go they are less effective the farther removed I am from actually living in the world of the comic so we start with Biddy and Jack like you know making out we move into the party you know before the kegster we move into the party and then afterward we're dealing with the aftermath of the kegster right which is where we get the title strip from which is a chronological division and it makes sense but somehow the juxtapositions between the slices of time and the fact that the transitions are really messy, as well as the fact that Check Please like normally has these little stories that are, they follow the Aristotelian unities of time, place, and action, if you will. Really, I don't know. This one really, I thought it was bad, which was surprising because again, this is one of my favorite strips in the whole comic. So I was surprised upon rereading it to think that the structure was bad. This is a pretty common criticism of Check Please is the thing. She doesn't show transitions or, like, cause and effect. She just shows, like, moment, 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 and lets the reader kind of fill in, like, in their own brains, like, what must have happened in between these things to get you from thing to thing. And the critique is usually leveled from, like, strip to strip. Or year to year. I think sometimes it happens in comics as well, where it's not really like what happens in one panel is informing another panel. Sometimes there's little bubbles that just say like, a little while later, which is not uncommon in comics. It's not. And that's why it sort of surprised me, because I actually don't normally the individual you know, strips don't really bother me when they shift. So 
I just thought it was interesting to notice that this time around, something about the juxtapositions, like it's both that they aren't strong enough. So it's just sort of this little rock skip, you know, on the surface of a lake, if the lake are the events of the evening. And normally that works for me, but for whatever reason in this one, it's like the, the transitions weren't jarring enough and they also weren't connected enough. So it's just sort of a, a mushy peas of a, of a transition. Well, she's got plot such as it is that she's got to fit into, you know, a, a pretty tight structure. We have to make room for the, you know, locker room exploration. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do have to make room for that. You're right. And we did. I do start to feel like this becomes very common in years three and four. She doesn't want to be doing this comic forever. It needs to basically not sprawl wildly at length because it needs to be able to like fit into a book, either a Kickstarter book or a mass printed book. I think she's just like not that interested in really drawing this out too much at a certain point. But we start to get a lot of scripts that are basically like, Four different things happening, all crammed into one strip. And that's not to say that we don't have moments that are just sort of like a narrative rest or mostly aesthetic. The the PB&J comic that we're about to get is a good example of that. But they become decreasingly fewer, these comics that are like, what's happening over the course of one little moment that's been sort of blown out. Like, if you think about the epic Hexter, that is basically a few minutes to the party that is playing out over three strips. And now here we have multiple extended scenes basically being crammed into one strip. So she's not afraid to experiment with how she's doing her storytelling, but I do think that this starts to, like, get really bad the further we go into the into the year three and four storylines. Maybe it is part of experimenting and becoming, like, a more advanced storyteller and being ready to move on to different kinds of stories, as she does eventually do. Yeah, reading years one and two, there was lots to be like, well, this is bad, but it never struck me in quite this way. Almost a little too utilitarian as a structural choice. The things that were bad to me in years one and two were typically things that actually didn't stack up to anything. Like, I thought this was going to mean something, or I thought this character was going to be developed, or... I thought that there was a reason why this arc was happening, but in retrospect, this was just kind of stupid and it didn't justify its presence. We get a lot of strips here that are actually sort of like bad storytelling or unclear or mm. just there's too much or whatever. Years one and two are the takeoff and then years three and four are the bad landings, like not sticking the landing over and over. Up in Biddy's bedroom at the house, he is telling some godforsaken fucking story that basically fills up an entire panel. Well, I guess first he and Jack are like kind of flirting, but then he tells some godforsaken story that takes up a whole panel. And then Jack kisses him in the middle of it and he doesn't get to finish telling his story. So the story is of interest in part because this is where some of the speculation about whiskey came from because it's about whiskey hanging out with the lacrosse bros. 
Um, and you asked, is Jack kissing Biddy to shut him up? And the answer is, why, yes, because Biddy is boring. But I think also that, you know, Biddy is nervous here. At least that's sort of, well, I don't know. I mean, that's sort of the impression I get, right? Is that Biddy tends to go on and on as a way to fill space. And why would you do that? Well, because he's nervous. Maybe he's nervous, even though they're having this like weird domestic play date, essentially, where they're sort of like play acting a relationship. Um, I mean, not that they're not in a relationship, but they're sort of performing, you know, they're sort of performative in the way that they're they're showing their love for each other or whatever. I am also wondering whether is it because he's nervous or is he just like supremely comfortable and he just like the filter is gone or is it simply because he can't help his ball of sunshine like act I don't know I think all three of those things kind of say interesting things that he is both trying to let Jack into this life that Jack is no longer part of but was so recently part of so it's sort of like this door opening into the you know Sam Ullman's hockey world but also like why are you saying this when you're making out with your boyfriend and hanging out with him on the bed listen who amongst us does not occasionally tell a story about whiskey from samuel men's hockey i think this is yes a tick that he has or a habit that he has this sort of like blathering inconsequentially about some bullshit that he has probably developed over the years in part because he hates social awkwardness and he just wants to fill empty space and in part because he probably actually like thinks this is really interesting and just wants to fucking tell somebody but i think this is basically like a character trait of his that has been set up pretty much from the beginning i think if you think back to you know jack having an emotional phone call with his dad at the loading dock when Biddy shows up to try to comfort him after overhearing him, he starts, you know, blathering. And Jack is basically like Biddle to like get him to stop doing it. Part of what Ngozi is trying to get across here and part of what we're meant to accept and believe about Jack and Biddy is that they've been talking to each other via Skype all summer and therefore have an unusually large amount of like comfort around each other and they have this amazing rapport where they talk and talk and talk and oh god it's so interesting and they have such a great connection and they like understand each other so well also it's Jack ultimately who wants to like go back downstairs so that people don't get wise to what they're up to biddy kind of wants to stay upstairs and not go back downstairs which kind of indicates that he is very comfortable and happy there and doesn't necessarily want to like break it up jack if anything seems potentially nervous i don't know i still think that it's sort of strange to you know look into jack's you know ice blue terrifying gaze and then decide that it's the time to tell this story I don't know something about there I mean maybe this is like okay so there's this debate in fandom and by debate I don't really know if that's the word for it but where do Jack and Biddy have sexual chemistry and like some of us say no and some of us say how could you say that they're so in love they fuck all the time and it's hot as hell right so there's like a real debate about that I read them as having a very intense and fraught chemistry is it sexual like I guess among other things sure and increasingly to me as the series goes on their chemistry on screen actually sort of dissolves at least that's what I remember from reading it the first time around 
I remember when I first read this, I thought that their like sort of chemistry, I was like really excited. I was like, oh my God, they kissed on screen. Wow. Like we truly live in the future. Gay people exist. Hooray. Or whatever. I don't know. I was into it in the sense that I was happy to see this culmination of their relationship. And the rest of the strip made me lose my mind. And I was like, oh my God, Ngozi is a genius. I don't know. There is something about this dynamic where they're like canoodling. Jack has been secretly fetishistically like gathering pity shorts, which we'll talk about in a second. I'm sure at length, there's something about that, which is like setting the setting the groundwork for this thing that will become this like very bizarre, rigid, performative relationship to me later. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I didn't feel this way the first time I read it, but I feel it now through this backwards gaze. It's like there's something odd about this whiskey story being slipped in here. They're supposed to have sexual chemistry. The way in which Jack is gripping Biddy's hip, thigh. There was a whole thing about whether it was his butt or not. It's definitely supposed to be. Well, I take that back. It's possible it's supposed to be his ass. The way it is drawn anatomically, it could not possibly be. It is mostly the side of his leg, I guess perhaps his hip, maybe some a little bit of his butt maybe because this is a two-dimensional still medium we can't see that jack is actually like rubbing his hand all over and touching all the various parts it's possible that it can't get too risque so she can't really show him like full hand gripping biddy's entire behind but like it's I, I think the implication is that he's he's holding Biddy like in a sexual area because he's sexually attracted to Biddy. They're talking about Biddy's performance at the hockey game. Sexual chemistry is somewhat subjective. I think we have to accept the implication is that Jack is really turned on by Biddy. First of all, his eyes are wide and he's looking at Biddy glowingly and he's gripping Biddy's leg and or ass. Also, in the next panel, he just like grabs Biddy and and pulls him into a pretty deep kiss that produces a little cartoon heart. They sort of melt together over three panels. Yeah, I mean, the implication is obviously that they have sexual chemistry and that they're really into each other. My guess is that they didn't get up to anything. You know, they're fully clothed. They're not really, like, mussed up in the next panel. I think they're just kind of kissing, and then they sort of, Jack, like, cuts it off. But I also think of Ngozi's note in I think the year two printed volume about parse three where she's commenting on the ellipses outside of Jack's door while he and parse are making out and what she asks is furthermore how long do those ellipses last and her point is well this is what comics allow they allow your imagination to sort of fill in well, anything could be happening. And that seems appropriate for a medium where people are going to be bringing all sorts of different things to it, and she really likes to capitalize on that. I certainly, at this point in time, 
was very interested in the idea that they had some sort of like sexual misfunction or whatever and that their you know cutting it off here was indicative of like something deeper and more interesting that they had to realign over the course of the comic i now am sure that that's not actually happening it's kind of interesting to think about my own relationship with their relationship and we don't have to talk about this endlessly but I'm a very slow writer like I love to write fanfic but oh boy does it take me the longest of anyone to write a long fanfic like some people really just roll out 60,000 words and I'm like still plunking away on you know a a shorter story I have a fanfic about Biddy and Jack's sex life and like Jack's bad sex life basically which I wrote over the course of, I don't know, several months, a year or something like that. And I feel like when I think about that fic and I think about writing it, my intentions when I first started it were to write about Jack and Biddy having like actually a fairly good and happy sex life. And then by the time I actually wrote the end, it was like, it was like pretty dark. (laughs) Not that. Whatever was going on with them was not something happy. They're clearly supposed to be sexually attracted to each other and they're supposed to maintain that sexual attraction the whole comic. That's very clear. But for whatever reason, like the way that it's portrayed trade to me shifted over time and it's interesting to revisit this moment and see with these like old jaded eyes what new eyes once loved and now I'm like wow well they sure do look like misfunction is the word that will eventually describe um pretty much every night in the bedroom I think maybe they'll get like a pump to deal with that I guess you know we look at these panels and we see Biddy supine with his hands on Jack's chest and Jack kind of looking at him like ooh. While Biddy is like, oh, honey, blah, 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 staring at him blankly while Biddy is like, oh, 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 or whatever. So I don't want to read what's on screen, partly because the the view of the actual comic is fucked up for some reason. So the text is very small. Well, that's not sexy. That's, you know, I have my ideas about like, what sorts of things I would be attracted to personally and also what sorts of things speak to me in media and I'm just kind of like oh okay I will say I did find them uh kissing in the comic like very exciting partly because yeah I even in 2016 the idea that like oh it's not beating around the bush it's just gonna actually show us like these two characters making out was very exciting thinking about it now it's like no biddy is so fucking small he's like a little paper crane his entire body fits in jack's armpits that to me is not cute the fact that he can be entirely subsumed by jack's entire frame while jack sort of like snakes himself down biddy's bed like a python is just not that erotic Somebody else is going to look at this and they're going to be like, oh, yes, this is very romantic. Jack is looking at Biddy and he's captivated by Biddy's magnetism. Biddy is giving his full on sweet Southern cupcake performance. And Jack is so absorbed in it and just like feels so lucky and grateful to be in the presence of this special human being. Tomato is making the most disgusted face. Jack simply cannot help himself but pull Biddy in for a kiss. And they melt together, clutching each other, tongues a-dueling. 
I'm sure they pull apart breathlessly. Some reader actually finds this very sweet and very compelling and very romantic and like it's the building block of a great sexual relationship within the confines of, you know, romance fiction. I mean, I don't think it's like you can objectively say Jack and Biddy do or don't have sexual chemistry. They're definitely supposed to, but whether or not you want to find another reading within that, well, you can and I have. This is a very Samei-Wuke situation, right? Like you have the tall, hulking, dark-haired man and the small, blonde, slash feminine man and like they're in love and whatever. And so I guess part of that sexual chemistry debate, which I totally agree, right? It's absolutely subjective. It's whatever you are bringing to reading the media that is going to make something as intimate and specific and individual and idiosyncratic as eroticism work. That's why, like, I think straight romance novels are really boring and I'll read, like, weird gay tentacle sex and be like, nice, like, right? Like, it's going to be whatever you bring to the table that makes you interested in an erotic moment that is really individual but it is also socially constructed as well like it's individual and social right and so I guess it depends on whether or not you find this trope effective and to me the trope is like you know that trope is not especially queer like to be interested like it is it is queer they're gay men I'm not trying to say that this is not a queer relationship whatever blah 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 but I think that that trope of like one powerful person one weak person one strong person, one emotional person, one person who protects, one person who nurtures. Like to me, that is not a particularly queer reading of the dynamics and like the potential dynamics in a relationship. And so part of the reason this doesn't work erotically ultimately is because there's no real subversion of this romance trope, this like big, strong man, small, blonde man trope. What works and what makes something effective is the subversion of expectation. Like to me, that's what makes that potentially erotic. And I guess maybe what happens is that this plays so firmly into that without subverting it that I can't find it erotic unless I read subversion into it. And I'm like, oh, it's because they have a fucking machine in the other room. And that's like what's really going on. Right. So like that's how I was able to eventually find my way to how they can be married and happy forever, or at least married forever. But yeah, I don't know. I find it interesting to revisit this panel because I remember being swept up in the romance of it. And I just like totally do not feel that this time around. If you go a couple panels later, when they're done making out and Biddy gets off the bed, he puts Jack's hat back on Jack and he's standing while Jack is sitting. And the way their posture in those panels looks is if not more of like a bitty dominant positioning then somewhat more egalitarian where biddy is putting his hand on jack's shoulder he is in this posture like towering over jack literally looking down at him while jack looks up at biddy and yeah jack is also sort of like holding biddy's butt but they fit together in a way that is slightly less stereotypical and sort of visually demonstrates that they have more of a back and forth or more of a shared power dynamic that Biddy has control over the situation in certain ways and she's showing this in a visually recognizable form even if people haven't really thought about it necessarily on this level. If I were fucking Jack and I had graduated college and biddy was talking to me about some like freshman guy i would just be like let me stop you right there i do not care about this i have graduated college and i have a job 
and I live in a condo, you know, we're fucking and that's cool. But just like I, I I do not have the bandwidth or the capacity in my heart or my brain for whiskey and or like what is happening at college. That's true. But you know what I didn't think about until right now is I would have had exactly the same reaction. I also like teach right so I like spend time with young people so I'm just like oh god that's like I I I can't goodbye I cannot deal with this outside of my work like I need to leave but Jack is a 25 year old and he's a rookie which means he's actually probably spending a fuck ton of time with 18 year olds so I never thought about that before right now but I wonder if that's part of why that doesn't trigger that sort of like reaction a little bit is because he actually, first of all, is emotionally stunted. So, okay. But then also he's spending all of his time with 18 year olds. And so maybe it feels normal to like hear about, you know, dumb 18 year old shenanigans, but I'd never thought about that before right now. But he's not spending all his time with 18 year olds. First of all, he's not participating in the sort of NHL tradition of being taken under the wing of a vet and living with that person. He's basically an adult man who's like moved into his own condo for plot purposes, I'm sure, because he couldn't conduct an affair with Biddy if he were living in like Marty's house. (laughs) Although, great AU, someone write it. Marty gets it on it. That said, Mrs. Marty gets it on it. Of course. Oh yeah, well, you know, it's she's cool yeah i think that's partially correct i'm sure but also jack is shown gravitating toward the older players and also yes even though those are 18 year olds they're 18 year olds who are like sharing the same professional space that jack is like they have the same job they're getting not the same exact, but similar paychecks. Those 18-year-old rookies who he's interacting with are his co-workers. The freshmen on the team who I'm not on the team with anymore, and my only real connection to them is that my boyfriend knows them, that's a much more tenuous connection. It's also like Jack is, I mean, I guess part of the moral of the story of this comic is like when you go to a really nice college... You never really move on, do you? But this is something Jack is left behind. Like, he doesn't live in this house anymore. He's not on this team anymore. He doesn't go to this college anymore. Like, he has become an adult. And unlike the transition that people go through when they graduate college a lot of the time in, you know, the 21st century, which is that you end up stuck in limbo of like living with your parents or, you know, trying to figure things out. Jack is not having that experience. Jack had that experience seven years ago. He's already completed that part of his life. So the thing that sometimes six people back into the college context is not really happening for him. And I guess it is really, really different to between to be 18 at like fake Yale and to be 18 at some NHL team where you're making $700,000 a year. Like that, that is a very significant difference. That's true. Jack is like, we need to go back downstairs. I've already said this in previous year three strips, but something that I am dying to know and will never get resolution on is like, 
how they decided to be closeted within a few strips jack is gonna be like we need to come out why are you closeted biddy just come out but it's like here we have a strip where he's basically like well we need to go back downstairs because otherwise people will get suspicious my assumption based on the breath and depth of jack's emotional intelligence that we see throughout the entire uh comic is that they never talked about it or maybe biddy sort of like talked about it once and they both looked away from it because it was painful how do i articulate this i think that there's like certainly an internalized pressure right like when you grow up closeted and when you grow up in high pressure environments and highly homophobic environments, there's a rule book in your head, especially for Jack, who loves rules. I wouldn't be surprised if we could read that into his character, right? There's a rule book in your head of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, especially when you like canonically have anxiety. Um, you become very, 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 very aware of the things that people could read into everything that you do. I think that this becomes second nature for a lot of people who like are closeted or or have other sort of marginalized parts of their lives that they don't talk about. Certainly there's an internalized pressure for Jack. Like I think that he has, especially with Kent, right? Like he has experience doing this already. This maybe is a juxtaposition to how it was with Kent, right? Or we could read it that way where with Kent, like there was this deep secrecy and there's such a deep secrecy around that relationship that Jack still won't call it a relationship, even though it seems like it was one to some extent or something. If we look at through that lush romantic lens again, Biddy has taught Jack that it's not worth that self-policing. And through Biddy and through his relationship with Biddy, Jack can finally like discover what it means to be able to be out. And in fact, it has now become more painful to be closeted than not closeted, whereas before it was like more painful to be known. However, are people really going to be suspicious of them? No, everyone is drunk. Everyone is fucking vomiting. Everyone thinks Jack is straight. Like, no, of course not. At least not at this point. Yeah, I mean, he comes back downstairs with Biddy and Shitty is like, uh, I know you have a girlfriend. They're not going to know. And it's also like Jack is their close friend and they all know that he has a friendship with Biddy. Biddy posted about how Jack came to see him in Georgia. So it's not like they don't know that like he and Biddy have some kind of friendship that's perhaps more so than just like former captain and guy <laughs> so i really just think like yeah we were hanging out upstairs you know i don't really love kegsters is basically gonna be sufficient even if somebody is suspicious which i'm sure they won't be honestly i think if anything anyone at the party would think it might be like oh no they're like doing they're like smoking pot up there and neither of them usually smoke pot like I feel like no not because there's anything but like I'm trying to think about what do people do when they go into private rooms at parties they like do drugs or they have sex or they are boring and talk like those are the three things that you would I could imagine people possibly imagining Biddy and Jack would do this scene kind of concludes with the oh you left your hat here oh you've been leaving shorts at my house which is not really elaborated upon in the actual comic, but it is in the blog post. Overall, the basic takeaway here is that, oh, they're spending a lot of time together. They're very comfortable with each other. There's a sort of fluidity 
between them going back and forth between each other's spaces and also there's this like domestic quality to their relationship the blog post has this header image where jack is opening up a drawer in his bedroom and you see this little like parade of pairs of shorts and socks that Biddy has been leaving at Jack's house. It's drawn in a really weird looking way. It's actually drawn in uh, what Egyptologists sometimes call aspective. The rest of the scene is in perspective. Jack is in the foreground and so is the dresser that he's opening. So the part of his closet that's in the background looks A, relatively smaller because it's farther away and b most of it is blocked like you can't see most of it because jack and the dresser are in front of it that's perspective it's basically showing you what you would see if you were actually standing there watching jack having this phone call looking in the drawer perspective is where the aspect of a scene or the aspect of an object that gives you the most information about it is how it is portrayed. So the full pair of shorts spread out next to the full pair of socks unrolled, paired together, so that you can really see fully every pair of socks and every pair of shorts is an Egyptian style of drawing. <laughs> it's how they would draw like food. So so that you could really see like, oh, it's it's an onion and a loaf of bread, not like a massive pile of food that's all overlapping each other. Great. Glad I told you this. It kind of works here, sort of. No, it doesn't. It's just awkward. It's just fucked up and weird. I don't know why she drew it like this. Anyway, uh, this is very easily fetishized. The idea that um, Jack is collecting these objects, these items, is a little kinky. Socks, of course, go on feet. A very erotic body part. And shorts go on your butt and crotch. Almost as erotic. And, like, these are things that have smells, and there's a whole thing in, like, gay porn about, like, the eroticism of smells. Like, did not put two and two together when we discussed the jockstrap, the mighty jockstrap. But um, I think that this is easily seen as a, a accidental conversational relationship between Jack's weird fetish and, like, the fetish of holsters old jockstrap. Yeah, I was going to mention jockstraps. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, it's like a whole scent pig thing. Uh, I don't know if that term is too much for you, tomato. But uh, yeah, basically like... No, tell me more. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like the, some of these are pairs of athletics shorts. I guess Biddy is like, I don't know, maybe he's working out in them, maybe he's not. But, you know, they're basically pressed up to like where he's sweating and it's like ball and cock and ass sweat. 
And it's just like Jack's got them and they're probably wadded up in this drawer, not being cleaned or aired out. And, uh, you know, he could sniff them while he was jerking off if he wanted to. That said, uh, like in 2016, I read a fic. I don't remember who wrote it. I didn't look it up for this. But the name of the fic was Jack Zimmerman Shorts Collection. And it was basically like a PWP or a plot what plot or porn without plot, depending on what school you belong to. But I don't even know if that term is still in circulation. Basically, it was just a story about how Jack tries on Biddy's shorts that he left at his apartment, which are too small for him. And he feels them like creeping into his ass and like rubbing on his hole and like constricting his dick. And he he jerks off while he's wearing these shorts. And I, it's just one of these things that, like, I read when I was, like, very early in this fandom based fully on this extra and was just like, yeah, this guy's a freak. That's how I see him. He likes to have. If you're not trying to see Jack as a bizarre man full of bizarre plans, which is obviously how I prefer to see him, this is, like, also readable through a romantic lens or legible through a romantic lens where you know he's like collecting <laughs> well I just said that and then as I was about to say he's like collecting souvenirs I'm like well that's what serial killers allegedly do so I don't know this romantic lens is also a little a little I don't know suspect maybe but there's something about like wanting a reminder of your partner when the partner's away or whatever right so I think that you know you that's probably how it was meant and also like Jack is extreme, having four, five, six pairs of shorts. Maybe that's legible as just, you know, a funny haha gag. But to me, even when I read this in 2016 and I was, you know, still of the belief that like Jack and Biddy had a relatively normal sex life. I don't know. There is something about this that feels very outside the realm of like missionary position sexuality, if you will. Jack at like, you know, 16, looking up weird shorts videos on his mom's computer now that's a fic jack googling like men in two small shorts athletic locker room height butt crack (laughs) but then he like forgets to clear the history so his parents are like jack are you outgrowing your shorts let's go get you you a new pair or she's like, Bobby, I told you not to use the computer for this. Jack uses it. <laughs> anyway, they're uh they're approximately 47 years old, tomato. Wait, who's approximately 47 years old? Oh, Jack and Biddy. They've been married for about 27 <laughs> years, like in this strip. Now, am I an expert about relationships? <laughs> yes, obviously. I've had so many thousands and therefore i know exactly how relationships work yeah sure they've known each other for a couple of years as someone who like has had some experience in the realm of human relationships i don't know i feel like switching from being friends with someone or like shifting from a more friends position to a more intimate position or whatever like typically there is a period that takes getting used to being with another person in a different way at least this is my impression from like you know living in the world and talking to people and that 
period isn't necessarily going to be served by talking on Skype. Like that's a different kind of comfort. And even outside of the realm of like, you know, romantic relationships, if you've ever had a friend who you primarily talk to in one medium and then you hang out with them in a different medium, like there, there is a shift. It's different to see someone in real life than to talk to them on Skype. It's different to talk to someone on Skype than to text them on Tumblr or whatever. There's like, you know, genres of talking to people and genres of figuring out how friendship and sometimes a friendship works really well in one place, then you meet this person in person, you're like, oh, this sucks. And so to see Jack and Biddy immediately enter this like profound domestic comfort, I think for me is part of why it feels weird. And part of why I talk about the performativity of their relationship, like to me, this is playing at being domestic, because it is just like impossible for me to imagine a world in which people are immediately so genuinely comfort with comfortable with each other. And like, maybe that's just insight into my psyche. I don't know. Maybe there are people who like immediately grow very comfortable with each other. But I have known people who become intimate very quickly. And that is not the same thing as comfort. I think this is all meant to say that Jack and Biddy just have an amazing red string rapport meant to be just click. It's also not me, but I believe that's the intention of of this dynamic here like oh they just have this metaphysical faded lovers that's so widely out of proportion to the stakes of the rest of the series I guess that's part of why it's hard for me to like engage with that but yeah I think you're I mean I I think you're right I think that's what it's meant to portray it's just it like does not compute for me this is the flaw of the major critique that she doesn't tell and doesn't show the relationship developing. Like, we saw them basically being kind of awkward, having a few hearts to hearts. Biddy sat with Jack while he was crying. Then they kissed. And then all of a sudden they have this, like, perfect relationship. We're told that off screen they did a lot of, like, relationship developing over the summer and we're just supposed to like take it that yeah they're they're in this place. I think what would have been way more realistic to me would have been yeah actually if they really were just like horny, just like really horny, couldn't take their their eyes off each other, were like consistently like texting and sexting and if their interaction in the locker room in the previous strip hadn't been this like oh kind of like stilted like you know homophobia adjacent trying to find grounding and then having a wholesome interaction but rather like you know fuck me eyes and like trying to be chill even though they were both like wanted to basically like just leave and like get a hotel room (laughs) like that is the dynamic that I would believe for like early in these people's relationship this is very like pg rated fanfic you know rated k plus or whatever (laughs) whatever the rating is level fanfic where it's like oh we're gonna fucking make out and then we're just gonna be like oh god okay we gotta stop making out time to go downstairs everything's cool (laughs) and nobody's horny no one has an erection. No boners at the kegster. I feel like I had something to say, but then I laughed too hard. No, I don't know what it was. So yeah, sure. Let's talk about shitty. Who? You know, that guy, shitty. 
Okay, so Shitty. Uh, Shitty has not really been in the comics since... Honestly, I guess his last major appearance was when he was asking Lardo to cut his hair off. And then he was astonished on the roof of Saber that nobody knew his first name. People in 2016 had been dying, just desperate to find out what was happening with Shitty. And I don't blame those people. I was also curious because he had been a main character of the comic. And then all of a sudden he was not there for something like seven strips. I guess this is realistic. He's living in Cambridge and he's going to law school. And as Ngozi says, like in several different context he's really busy and like law school is hard and that's also some of the implication of what he's saying in this strip about his daily experience even though yes the verisimilitude of that is like correct and i agree with it he was a main character so the fact that it's just like yeah he's gone now whatever he'll be back he'll make a guest appearance is kind of awkward it doesn't not work for me you know one of the motifs of this strip is growth and change and whatever or at least it's meant to be like is it effectively about that no I don't think so necessarily but I think that it's certainly trying to be about this growing up process and I think like the reality that as as you grow it gets like harder to see your friends and your lives become less entwined than you ever imagined they could be I think that that's part of the nostalgia of the strip for this time that it really romanticizes right this time where you live with all your friends and like everything you care about is easily accessible to you, at least in in potentia or whatever. I think that that could be effective. I think that because Shitty eventually just like pieces out and and it's not really explored very much, it, it doesn't end up being effective. But I actually don't hate that he's been gone. I think that it it works with that aspect of the strip. This is like really the last time you find out anything about what's going on with him like literally for all of check please like i'm not exaggerating like this is it so if you care about shitty this is really the last time he's doing anything greater than simply passing through you were going to college with somebody and you saw them every fucking day and then all of a sudden you graduated college and you never saw them again even though they were a major part of your life Like, yeah, that's true. That does happen. Not wrong. At the same time, this is a comic. This is a fiction. She's making decisions about what she wants to include. And you've come to love and care about certain characters. We had to give a shit about the fact that this guy cut his hair off. We had to give a shit about the fact that this guy got into law school. And then all of a sudden, now he's in law school and we just don't see him again. And we have to care about these other characters who we have now less time to care about and like get developed. I think it's possible that it's both accurate to the experience of like growing up and moving on. And also, not very good storytelling. Well, it has to be deliberate, right? Like, if you take a character away and give them back, that's why I'm saying that I think that it could work if it had been done deliberately and not simply as a as an act of verisimilitude or because she was tired of writing about shitty or whatever. One of the things I like about comics and the fact that they're 
temporal because they're sequential like all works are temporal but you know comics typically release in episodes or in strips or whatever so it's a it's an ongoing reading experience as opposed to a book I think that's one of the things that like could be effective and that you can use the structure really well that's like how Ngozi used the cross-platform structure as well the fact that it's a temporal medium was part of what made that work especially because of the meta-narrative that so much planning went into this comic and it was so deliberate I think that's what makes it ineffective. Like you can make the feeling of your reader missing a character really matter because you are trying to make a point about what it means to grieve someone or what it means to go through a shift to transformation or whatever. But the fact that Biddy appears to be like largely unaffected by Shitty's absence means that because Biddy is our POV character through which we experience the comic most of the time, it means that it ends up not mattering. When it should, it should matter that that shitty's not there. Like it should not only be this pain that we as readers sort of like experience and and don't have any catharsis over. It should be a thing that we are feeling on purpose. I think that's like what makes it so frustrating. People care about this character. Like we were told for three years in real time that we're supposed to care about this guy. He's important. Like he has these very important early inflection points in the comic where he's very crucial to Biddy's story. He's one of the main characters and all of a sudden he's just gone. Part of why she writes out this thing about him going to law school and, you know, listening to people argue in the library is because people were like, what's going on with shitty? Where's shitty? What's happening with shitty? Because he was one of the main characters of the comic and he was just missing. And I believe to Ngozi, the response is just like, well, what do you mean? Where is he? Is going to law school? I mean, maybe this is part of the shift also in terms of from a sports narrative and from a sort of getting together narrative to dysfunctional slice of life. And then eventually into second half of year three and year four, I don't know, like, gay power couple takes on the world like i don't know what the fuck you know to call that storyline in terms of a genre boring literary fiction like i don't know anyway so <laughs> so we could say that yeah jack and biddy's relationship becomes privileged over all other relationships and all other characters whereas before this it couldn't be privileged because it didn't exist yet so it was really this like group of friends so shinny's basically describing his life in law school Criminal law is what it says like. I think it's interesting that this is what Shitty finds interesting. So if you have thoughts on why he'd be into that, I'm interested to hear them. I mean, I think this is part of what's hard to know because we know so much about Shitty and yet don't actually know that much. I think that we can see Shitty as this person who is like pretty dedicated at least to the idea of himself as someone who like works towards a better world that's why he like accepts shit uh accepts biddy as a gay dude on a hockey team and why he like doesn't care you know he's just like supremely chill and i think that a way to think about being supremely chill is like wanting a world where everything is okay honestly what i'm thinking about is how someone like shitty who believes in justice like in the concept of a just world or as a thing to work towards right but also like was raised in this deeply conservative environment in these deeply conservative schools with this deeply elite group of people uh, to me it's like mm, this is how shitty becomes a prosecutor to be honest with you or it might be no reason it never comes back like a lot of things in this comic it's not just like i liked this character why is he not here anymore i'm angry that she didn't do what i wanted her to do in her comic 
the general sense of alienation and detachment that follows like the end of a major period of your life and sort of haunts like the start of the next period is actually really relatable and like really affecting and really worth exploring. If I were shitty and my best friend, who I've never spoken to in the comic before, but I'm told he's my best friend, just started this insane pro hockey career and he was like blowing me off, I would actually be quite hurt. And I would actually feel like quite alienated while I was going through this transition from a part of my life that I really loved to something that was like new and strange and intense. I would actually be pretty, if not miffed, then at least like bother and I think it's something that really could have been carried through like more of this year or more of the comic it is worth exploring and when you just said that it made me think about how Jack did that to Ken just like cut him off and how that also is a less formalized more abrupt version of that kind of alienation detachment and loneliness and I'm not blaming Jack the fictional character for that either first of all because you know he has no agency but also because that is a thing that could happen you could go through this really intense experience with someone and just be so fucked up about it that you didn't want to interact with them anymore that is like a normal thing that happens and it is normal also to like move on to a next stage of your life and let go of the people who you were in that stage of life with you but by privileging Jack and Biddy's relationship over all these other relationships that we've grown to care about, like those consequences are ignored. And now that I'm thinking about it, as I think about what the first part of year three like ends up being, I wonder if that parallel of like learning to not detach, learning how to reattach or learning how to like find catharsis or find connection or something in these alienated moments could have been part of the original plan for the year. The reason he might press Jack on the girlfriend thing is because I could see finding Jack having a girlfriend, a thing that is not typical for him, like a more forgivable reason for Jack to be blowing shitty off than to just be moving on to the next stage of life. Like then you can first of all attach that or pin it to a person. And it means it's not really about you and your friendship no longer fitting into this person's life. It means it's about this whole other thing, which has social narratives attached to it, which like we understand it being distracting. So I think that's part potentially of why we can see Shitty bringing up the girlfriend situation. Jack is not cutting off Shitty. He's still friends with and interacting with Shitty, who just sounds like he's not being a very good or a very present friend. Yeah, this is all normal, but just because something is normal doesn't mean it's good. Or I think we're meant to feel like Shitty was a very good friend when Jack was like going through the hard transition in his life of going to college and trying to figure out what the fuck he was going to do. And in theory, Jack would repay this to Shitty by being a little more present, but I think we're just supposed to presume that like, Jack has these greater concerns now, so Shitty is being a little bit overly emotional because he's drunk. When I talk about Shitty finding this more forgivable reason, like I concur that Jack's behavior is not actually good friendship, but we're not invited to look at it that way. I think we're sort of supposed to look at Shitty blowing up like this as like a bad behavior, right? Which it also well, is. The default presumption that if Jack is being sketchy and absent, it's because he's in any kind of relationship is itself sort of fucked up. 
like the fact that that's where people's brain goes just says a lot about like how relationships are privileged over other kinds of social connections obviously the default presumption that if jack is in any kind of relationship it's with a woman you know a lady you know it doesn't need to be said that that's homophobic like that that is what homophobia is presuming that the only kind of relationship is a same-sex relationship indeed just not being like you're a relationship but rather you have a girlfriend like it's it's that heterosexuality is the default but this comic isn't about homophobia so i guess we need to come up with a different word for how to characterize this moment this is what Jack has probably historically wanted people to presume. Like, that's not to say that he loves being in the closet or that, like, it's cool to be in the closet or anything like that. But, like, there's really no reason why Shitty would presume that if Jack is dating somebody, it would be a woman. Like, this is the impression that Jack has effectively wanted people to take away, perhaps regretfully, but he's only been known to go with women. So it's like, yeah, that that is what you would presume, isn't it? Like that kind of how it works. I think you mean wheel. Okay. But all of this actually flies in the face of what at the time was a very prominent pre-2016 headcanon that Jack was one of the people that Shitty told Biddy that came out to him like his first week of college or whatever it was there was also this conspiracy theory going on in the fandom that should he somehow like knew about jack and biddy or that he had been pushing them together over like year two and that he was like machiavellian like relationship plotting behind the scenes because people used to think there were things happening in this comic and you want to know what that would have made a lot of sense wouldn't it are we still allowed to use the word just? Just. Not correct. That wasn't what was happening. I looked around for this and I couldn't find it. There was a collection of blog posts where somebody had transcribed or taken copious notes on live streams that Ngozi had done in like 2015 and early 2016 where she just answered people's questions and in this conversation she basically said no she doesn't know anything about Jack's sexuality Jack has never talked to shitty about it and he definitely wasn't pulling strings behind the scenes so in some senses this this particular strip is like settling a score of fanon or like fandom speculation also all of this just flies in the face of the notion that shitty is like a cool woke ally and apparently people could not believe I remember there being a really bad reaction to this strip and to a couple other strips in this year where they got really mad about Shitty for being a bad friend. And also they got like angry at Ngozi for depicting him as anything other than like the best ally who ever lived TM or whatever. This, of course, did not reflect on other aspects of the comic, like wheeling chicks, a thing we haven't heard for a while, but that raises its fun misogynist head again in this comic 
you know, is uncommented upon. So is chatter infantilization and, you know, lardo, uh, lardo marginalization. Like, me, like those things were commented on, but not widely in the fandom. As opposed to what I remember there being this really explosive reaction of like, how could Shitty do this? And people had fight had fights about it and whether this made Shitty a bad person or whatever. I mean, remember, this is Tumblr. At least that's where I was doing most of this stuff. Tumblr in 2016 was bad. And the social discourse and literary discourse happening on Tumblr in 2016, as I remember it, was also bad. Under nuanced often not able to take a postmodern lens in which multiple realities can be, you know, happening at once. This like new look at shitty where he was anything other than the supremely chill, all accepting, all tolerant friend really rubbed people the wrong way. And as I recall, they like gave Ngozi a hard time about it, which I think is what starts happening in year three. So it's important to mention. I don't know. This has like been a debate going on for a really, really long time since as long as I've been in fandom. But it is interesting to me that homophobia is so much less acceptable than misogyny in this fandom as in most fandoms. I don't know if that's still true. Like my relationship to fandom is very different now than it was in 2016. I'm mostly cackling to Secret and myself about whatever and I'm not really like having conversations with strangers so much anymore but really note that and the this reaction to this strip is like how intensely people were angry at shitty for this microaggression basically and it's a bummer because I actually really really like this I think that this makes shitty way more complex I think that it's a realistic depiction of how someone who cares a lot and really tries to be a good friend and tries to be kind can like completely fuck up because of the ways socialization teaches us to think about people while being totally well-meaning like being like kind of a you know sad friend but you know that's not a bad thing to be necessarily if that time's a little messy and I think that it's really real this is like one of the most real depictions of any homophobic element or like microaggressive element in this comic it's like really really real that someone you love who loves you can just fucking gut you accidentally that happens all the time if you are marginalized in a different way than someone else in your life and like you say something without thinking that happens very frequently i don't know it bums me out that people had such a terrible reaction to it which again i think was like in part because of people's relationship to this strip and how much they loved the fact that it was rather you know, not too painful or whatever, that they felt betrayed by Shitty as a real dude, even though he is, again, importantly, not one. I think it's worth remembering that Shitty has been obnoxious the whole time. Oh, he has, but people didn't treat him that way. Yeah, but he has, is the thing. He's been screaming effectively inappropriate things basically throughout the entire comic, and I think people took his kindness to Biddy and the fact that he was generally a sort of like chill dude who was into reading the newspaper or whatever he was shown doing in extras to take him for a certain kind of person but all of this was always layered in with the fact that he was just like a very performative very obnoxious dude who was very much like in your face and confrontational 
And we talked so much about this at way back in the beginning of the podcast, like in early year one, but it's like, yeah, this is a very specific kind of person. And yeah, sometimes it comes out in like a fun, cool context, but sometimes it comes out in like doing or saying things that are hurtful or awkward, or all of a sudden just enough things about the circumstances shift that it doesn't look fun and kooky anymore. It looks like sad and weird. We, I think both in the context of fandom and probably like you and me in our own lives, Tomato, sort of just occupy this like urban, progressive, leftward oriented space where it's like everybody's queer and everybody's fluid and we're all constantly trying to do our best and all this shit. But like society is structured around effectively just like heterosexuality and heteronormativity you can live in your sort of like progressive tumblr academic liberal bullshit space as much as you want to but you still also live in the rest of the world where these are the assumptions that are basically sewn into the the fabric of of life and also like most people are in fact just like cishets like the vast majority of people, like by far. So if you're going to try to make some sort of default assumption, it probably will be in that direction just because it's like that's the thing that's most likely to be true, especially if somebody has given you no other evidence that it might not be the case, that there's a signal that maybe you should like tread carefully. And I think it's just completely unrealistic to presume that somebody would be like your partner <laughs> or like whatever gender neutral version of this, uh, you know, a truly, you know, truly woke Stan or whatever would, would say like, that's, that's just not how it goes. So what's kind of wrenching about this is the realism of it and also understanding the like layered factors as to like why something like this would happen from somebody who you know doesn't mean any harm isn't like at the outset a bigot or whatever it happens like I was in a fucking Pilates class this morning and the instructor just kept being like ladies you know why why would she not have actually now I'm presuming she was a lady her name was Emma their name was Emma. That's what it is, though, right? Especially because I think there's this idea that it's like really easy to shed this stuff, but it's not. It's easy enough to change your language in the sense that it takes practice, it takes paying attention, but it's easy enough if you are trying to and are in the position to do so to like track the ways that people are talking about a topic and to try to mirror that as a way to be respectful. That is not that hard mostly access to spaces in which like these things are being changed and who has access to the spaces and how is like a whole podcast of its own and probably someone out there with a investigative journalism degree is doing a better job than me talking about it but to look at the way that you like, perform allyness right and to actually like do that is really an active process of examination and unlearning and like again there are more podcasts you don't need to hear me be talk about like anti-racism and anti-homophobia whatever all these things that we have to learn what to do in our lives in order to actually like create a world that does not operate according to these unconscious structures that we grow up in that were set in place through like systemic 
legal, political, and social choices made by people in power in the 1700s, et cetera, and, and onward and now. I think it's a really good example, actually, of how it's very easy to be like a good ally when you don't have stake in it. Like Shitty didn't know Biddy in year one. He just some random guy on the hockey team. It's no skin off Shitty's nose to be like, oh, it's fine that you're gay or whatever, right? But all of a sudden, in this different context, when someone you care a great deal about is acting differently and you're reacting emotionally without that sort of mediation of intellectual examination these old things come out like that happens that's real that happens for everybody no matter who you are that is just how it is and i think that tumblr's explosive reaction is interesting also in the context of like the anti-racism and other thing other discussions happening that year which you know this is before the election of donald trump but during the campaign i think there was a lot of discussion about race happening i think this is also quite interesting coming from like a black woman writer on the internet like it's not about that specific topic but i think that it's like a really beautiful expression of this thing that can happen to people who are marginalized i think there's a reason probably that it's so thoughtful and so nuanced right unlike some of the other parts of this comic that maybe don't handle topics as well and i think that it's like illustrative of why people had that explosive reaction because shitty is also having the same explosive reaction. Do you see what I mean? Like the fact that people had this really intense reaction to their like BFF shitty having unconscious bias is not unrelated to the fact of the way unconscious bias was shaping online discourse at that time. After all of this, Jack denies that he has a girlfriend. He was going to say, I'm not dating anyone. And then he stopped himself and he said, I don't have a girlfriend. He He's standing in front of Biddy. Biddy's right there. He doesn't want to totally deny that he's dating somebody because he is, but he doesn't want to let this assumption stand. So he changes course and says, I don't have a girlfriend. Shitty then flings another accusation at Jack. You don't have any other friends. And this is like the most interesting thing in this strip to me, actually, for several reasons. Yeah, from a character perspective, I think it's really cool because Shitty is, in this moment, really insecure, really entitled. He desires to, like, own Jack's affections, which is a defensive reaction that people have during this moment of alienation and detachment that people experience, right? That's a real thing that you feel insecure and then you sort of scrabble to try to hold on to what affection you think is no longer being offered to you, right? That's like a thing that almost everyone experiences at least a few times in their lives. And that leads to this ability to be like really quite thoughtlessly cruel. And most of these things are not explored in this comic very much. Like most of the story about growing up in the comic is quite simplistic. It's like you shut off who you thought you had to be and then you become who you really are. And it's beautiful. Like that's sort of the typical story of growing up that the comic portrays but I think that this moment really explores like the actual how painful and strange it is to actually shed those things and then how shedding those things actually becomes this extremely painful thing that you even resist as you are forced by time to experience them so I think that it's really interesting and I think that it adds a whole layer of nuance and complexity to Shitty and Jack's friendship alleged friendship again they don't talk but say that they did I think that this really shows the kind of intense ownership over people that I think a lot of people experience in their early 20s 
oh, these are going to be my friends for the rest of my life because we're all adults together. And again, it's this like nostalgic time of life. We're all living together. Our lives are so entwined, blah, blah, blah. And then that that doesn't ever play out because it can't because time moves and things change. I really like it for that reason. Like it's one of the most exciting things about the strip to me. It's also strictly not true. Jack definitely does have other friends. Like he's friends with Lardo and Biddy and Ransom, not Holster. But I think buried in here is a sort of hearkening back to the fact that when Jack got to Samwell, he probably didn't have any friends. She was probably the first friend he'd had, like, since Kent Parson, who, by the way, in Paratex, is described as Jack's first friend he never had a friend before he was like 16 years old or whatever because he is a like very awkward weirdo who isn't very likable in some ways this comic really likes to like have its cake and eat it too in terms of jack's likability so here's ngozi in the blog post playing this out she says I don't know why anybody likes Jack and it confuses me why Biddy likes him so much. And I think this is Ngozi having a dialogue with herself about this character because the comic does this back and forth. And she says, other than the aesthetics and millions of dollars and work ethic, he's just an angsty Canada man. If you've never talked to a jock like Jack before, maybe you've seen one on TV. How can such thrilling athletes talk and act like boring robots off the pitch court ice? Jack's shimmering personality is buried under a lot of tame hobbies, laser focus, and plain speech. So I guess the idea is that you really have to get to know Jack to, like, appreciate him, or maybe he's an acquired taste. But I think this basically gets at the sense that, like, yeah, probably when Shitty met him, Jack didn't have any other friends. And it's probably taken the past four years for Jack to become somebody who would spend time with somebody else. Like, I think Shitty basically had to pretty much, like, force him into a friendship, and now all of a sudden he has something better to do. The aesthetics is such a funny thing to say, because I'm pretty sure she means, like, Jack is hot. Other than the fact that he's hot and rich, I think that's what she is trying to get across. But I actually really like the interpretation that it means like the aesthetics of dating jack like what dating jack does for biddy i like that reading i mean okay do i believe in 40 and slips like i don't know talk to me some other time probably not but i do think that this reveals something interesting that reads towards that performativity of domesticity and relationship that that we talked about earlier and that will continue to characterize their relationship like biddy gets a lot of social cachet biddy gets a lot of image. Biddy gets something rhetorically from, you know, dating Jack. And I uh, I like that. And Gozi sort of maybe accidentally points that out. This is why it's like, well, Jack is probably a fucking freak because he's such a fucking weirdo. Like he barely even has friends, but also we're supposed to accept that he's like the most amazing man ever and everybody loves him. Like canonically, everybody does not. Meanwhile, Lardo is standing there just like very tepidly telling him he's a lightweight and that's kind of her role here i guess she's diffusing the tension i mean i think she is but i think by doing this she's also telling shitty that his behavior i don't know isn't appropriate the way that i've always interpreted it is that she's like okay okay like chill out 
I don't have more to add here other than once again we see Lardo like cleaning up after hockey boys like what else is there to say you know she's trying to control the situation and stop him from like shouting you don't have friends and then she just like doesn't have anything else to say or do in the comic that's it I think that like the more we talk about Lardo the more I realize just like how much she does not matter to the comic and I knew that but pointing it out over and over again is just kind of bumming me out they're dating well yes and yet uh since neither of them matter to the comic who cares sort of rounding out this strip is this conversation that ransom and holster have about jack and it's possible that this is worth like close reading because it's all over the place and it's nuts ransom says do you think jack was lying And then Holster says, about what? Having a girlfriend? No. Jack can't act for shit anyway. So this is Holster basically saying that, like, Jack sucks. Which he does. Then he says, law school's already driving shits off the deep end. And then Ransom, who is in the middle of picking up a beer can, I guess, says, bro, right? If he were dating some model, that's his shit. But like, he wouldn't hide it. Come on, shits. And then we get this poignant close-up of Biddy, Biddy's gloved hands washing dishes while Holster says, first month of my pro hockey career and I'm in his shoes? Not the best time to download Tinder, no bueno. Wow. And then Ransom continues to bring up Camilla Collins famous Camilla Collins, a rare sighting, to which Ransom says, holy hell, exactly, yikes. Which, mm, a rich text right there. No, that is Holster, I think. Oh, it is Holster? Oh my God. Okay, so yeah, because yeah, it is Holster. Ransom says, Holtzy, remember right. Jack and Camilla Collins? And then Holster says, holy hell, exactly, yikes. So I'm having this trouble remembering who's saying what, because first of all, it doesn't matter that much. And second of all, because these close-ups are of Biddy's hands and then of Biddy's phone on which we see a text from Jack saying, hey, can we Skype tomorrow night? I'm getting back late and need to get up early for the roadie. I want to talk to you about the kegster. I'm sorry. Meanwhile, Ransom continues that uh, Jack just has this. No, that's holster. Oh, God damn it. Whatever. Whoever says it says that Jack has a super laser focus going 110% on hockey. And there's probably not a lot of room in his life for a relationship. And that's why Jack is so good at hockey, why he's fucking incredible. And Ransom agrees. They continue. I guess shitty was coming for him. Like Jack had something to hide. No, the guy has a lot of things he keeps to himself, but it's never been the chicks he's been wheeling. And then like, yeah, well, I'm glad he came. And then in the center of this conversation, we have on the one panel, we see a close-up of Biddy's hand. On the other panel, we see the empty hall. And then a panel superimposed is Biddy's face feeling the best feeling in fiction stricken that's oh it's so delicious it's so good there's just this like horrible wonderful dramatic irony of biddy's you know like intense emotional reaction to this conversation as he alone cleans dishes the one structural thing that i like is that we start at biddy's room we move away from it and then in the final piece he's going back up to it but it's like 
implied that Jack won't be there this time, right? So there's like this very profound melancholy. So if you think back to one of the very first strips of the comic, Ransom and Holster are basically telling Biddy about Jack and they say that he's effectively a player and he's probably getting sucked off by some puck bunny upstairs, basically. And this was presented initially as something that you're supposed to take at face value and then the rest of year one basically deconstructs it and you find out oh maybe these guys don't know that much about jack and now these three people jack ransom and holster have all lived with each other for like two years so they know jack pretty well but they're also making a lot of presumptions about jack that aren't true and we've heard that through the rest of the comic. I think the function of this conversation, to me when I first read it, was to make you second guess what's happening with Jack and Biddy's relationship. I didn't read this necessarily as Ransom and Holster being wrong. I read it as Ransom and Holster saying things about Jack that were meant to trouble his relationship with Biddy. Jack's text in the middle of it, I think, absent the context from the rest of the comic, felt to me on first reading as like, oh, he might be telling Biddy something like, we can't hook up when other people are around anymore. Or we need to be much more careful or something like that. Also, I thought the fact that he was saying, I can't talk now and I'm doing these other things. So we'll have to talk sometime later. I'm sorry. As him basically putting Biddy off and telling Biddy that he can't really be around. And I thought the implication of the text was, I'm sorry that I can't talk to you right away. Having read the rest of the comic, and again, knowing what the deal is, I'm pretty sure what she's implying is that Jack is basically going to be like, I'm sorry for all of this. They communicate really well. I'm sorry that I've put you in this awful position, Bits. Definitely. And I wonder if it's meant to be deliberately obstructive like that. I think it is. Like, I think it's meant to be ambiguous on purpose, in part because most, like, there's this beautiful part of this year where ambiguity and misreadings and inscrutable emotion is explored in too skillful a way for me to think it's accidental. So I, I really think that this is like one of the strengths of Ngozi's writing, although eventually she abandons it. Like, we've talked about how effective she is at drawing faces that are feeling multiple emotions and you're not quite sure what they're feeling but also you can tell it's intense like we've talked about that a couple times and I think that she's doing something similar here with with the text I the first time I read it knew what it was intended within the sort of romantic trope like I'm sorry you know we'll figure it out whatever I could feel that but I think the fact that it's not clear you know there's this like tantalizing glimpse into the character's intimate lives and then we don't get it is Again, something she Ngozi uses on purpose frequently. We see it, you know, throughout the strip. And I think that it's one of those things that just like fuels frothing at the mouth fan activity because there's these like delicious little 
I keep calling this comic delicious. Someday I'll come up with a different adjective, but not today. There's these like delicious little glimpses of these conversations or whatever. And until she doesn't stick the landing, you know, what a ride because you're just, oh, this is really stupid, but this is making me think of Ernesto LeClau's book on populist reason. I won't get into it, but basically it's about how Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm like this. Basically, it's about how political political coalitions, broad political co- coalitions work because until they get in power, they can promise anything. And then once they're in power, like, oh shit, they can't deliver all of it. I think Ngozi is kind of doing something similar here. Like there's so many gaps that are just so tempting to fill in with these details. Like you pointed out that No Bueno is really open-ended in our outline. And I think that that's, true like what the fuck does no bueno mean what does yikes mean they're so evocative but they don't mean anything specific and so you can just bring whatever you want and that's how you end up in these like fan debates about whether jack is bisexual or jack is gay and like oh my god bisexual erasure gay erasure but no it's not erasure like both possibilities exist at once schrodinger sexuality or whatever you know i ended up finding this interview recently in which ngozi said at the end of the day fandom is a two-way street and there are boundaries in that street The fans have to respect anything that I put out there, and inversely, I can't really tell anyone what to do or not to do in their fan art or fan fiction derived from my work. Which to me is fucking wild, because that is, oh, not how she approached fandom at all at this time. It feels really interesting that she's been through this evolution in her career, where at least she has learned to say this. I don't know, like, what her deal is personally. But that she has learned to say, like, you do what you want, I'll do what I want, whereas at this time... 2016 is when there starts to be this really contentious relationship between fandom and creator in part because of things like really explosive reactions to shitty's you know assumptions and ransom and holster's assumptions although much more about shitty camilla collins yeah tell me about her the namesake of my check please tumblr she's the captain of the girls tennis team and as we saw in that extra strip year one that was sort of included in the kickstarter volume jack was set up with her to go to the winter screw for his junior year year one and then he went with her again in year two and i believe that also in this series of blog posts that i referenced earlier that took detailed notes on live streams that Ngozi did in 2015 and 2016. She expounded a little bit on Camilla Collins and basically did this six of one, half a dozen of the other, where she basically was like, yeah, they kind of dated sort of, but Jack, really wasn't actually that interested or into her and wasn't really paying a lot of attention so she basically just kind of quietly subtly called it off and his reaction to being dumped by her was that was a person I knew or something like that I very distinctly remember seeing this so I could not find it either but I want to corroborate I remember this post it was real 
I, I believe this post uh, will have been reblogged by many, many people and is certainly still floating around on the internet. It's just I cannot now find it because it's been at this point like seven or eight years and who knows who reblogged it and everything is hard to find on Tumblr. Like, so if somebody has a stable link or like they've reblogged it or something, feel free to send it over. She does the same thing she did with this like, why would anybody like Jack? Yeah, I don't know, why would anybody? Here's all these reasons to like him, but I guess why would you like him? It's basically the same thing where she's like, yeah, they dated, but sort of didn't they? Not really. And she also doesn't really like create the expectation within this uh, little summary that Jack was very interested in her. It seems like at most they were like hanging out. From what I recall, it wasn't even explicitly implied that they hooked up necessarily. Again, they were basically forced to go to a dance together because the ritual of the winter screw is that your friends or your roommates or whoever hook you up with somebody to go to the dance with there's no real confirmation as to like what extent their relationship was like serious or sexual it it basically sounds like jack was not that interested in her and then what ransom and holster say here is yikes no bueno and there's just no way to really know what this means at all because we basically don't know anything about Camilla Collins. We don't know anything about her relationship with Jax. It could mean like, wow, Jack spectacularly fucked that up. Or it could mean, wow, she was a shit show. You just don't know. You just don't know because it wasn't depicted. And all you have is them speculating. And this basically just serves to remind Biddy that like, Jack has a history and he doesn't. Also, that Jack has dated women or could date women or sometimes dates women. Hard to say without like more content or more context. I believe we'll find out in a couple of strips. Jack has told Biddy that he dot 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 with Camilla Collins. And when I say dot dot dot, I mean even in the strip, it's unclear. It's like, it's never specific enough to imply like, yeah, we were fucking or yeah, we were dating. It's it's just, he's rattling off a list of women and you have no idea what this means in context. And we'll dig into it because it's deeply fascinating. This all serves to basically create a sort of loose bag of interpret at will, which the fandom can take in whatever direction they want. And I also uh, believe that and goes these comments to somebody saying that fandom is a two-way street and she she can't fuck around with what's going on in her fandom. The rumor is that when Sheck Blues was just starting, she explicitly told people, I don't like BDSM, so don't like BDSM. And she constantly throughout the run of Sheck Blues was saying things like, I don't love this pairing, I don't get this pairing. Apparently, you know, again, another rumor is that she told people that she didn't get the pairing of Kent Biddy and she didn't want to draw it. I think I remember that. I mean, I guess it's a rumor because I can't substantiate it, but I remember seeing that and I don't, I mean, I guess I didn't hear it coming out of Ngozi's mouth, but I feel like I saw screenshots. It was that somebody in the first, the year one Kickstarter pledged $1,000 and their prize oh, was that's right. a 
standy cardboard cutout thing of any character and this person picked Kent Parson and because they were a prominent Biddy Parth shipper they asked to have Kent like holding a spoon or wearing an apron or doing something that suggested like just just an inkling of the pairing and Ngozi was basically like I fundamentally don't understand this pairing on any level and therefore I don't wish to draw this I mean, I guess it's a gray area, but certainly I've, you know, gotten the sense that she is somewhat opinionated about what people do in her fandom. That said, it's been a long time. It's not really an active fandom anymore. She doesn't really have anything on the go at the moment that is producing fan works. Maybe once she does, she will be able to create more separation between herself and the project. I also think besides the um, flip comic that is the third graphic novel in her first second deal, that's TBD when that's going to come out. A lot of the things she's working on now are like other people's characters, like for DC or something. So she may not be as invested effectively. Like it's not really her characters. And yeah, she's, she's the author of what's effectively a nebulous derivative work but you know she probably won't feel the same way like jack belongs to her biddy belongs to her about like some random dc character i mean part of it is that she helped foment the fandom right like her friends wrote some of the first fanfic and she wrote fanfic in huddles and so like we've talked about that before but i'm sure that also changes your relationship as a writer like if you are just from the beginning like i'm not going to get involved that's that other world and for like ip purposes or for whatever purposes like i'm not going to look at the fanfic that people produce that probably feels really different than being like, oh, this is my fun thing I do with my friends. It's become my livelihood. And now not only are people making fan works that I don't get, but like they're doing things that I don't like, I think, yeah, is is probably something that does take some time to un- undo. She's never going to be in that position again is the thing where... Yeah. It starts in this organic, like, you know, oh, I'm doing this for my handful of followers and my friends, and we're all sort of excited about this original story together. That's now, now that she's like a relatively famous author, you know, she, she's not, she's no, uh, who's a person? John Steinbeck. Alan like, Hellinghurst. Yeah, you know, well, actually, I, I don't really know how big that guy's footprint is. You know, she's no, uh. Shakespeare? I'm looking at my books. Uh, They're all just obscure. I don't think it would be correct to say she's no Mary McCarthy. She's no Caitlin Tiffany. I'm going to stop looking at my bookshelf now. She's a known quantity and there's going to be like PR for anything that she puts out. And it's going to come out in like an official capacity staggered announcement. The circumstances that led to her intervening in her own fandom in any capacity are never going to replicate. So easy enough to say this at this point. But yeah, she had a learning experience. Good for her. 
One of my favorite things to note about Chuck Please is that Ngozi or the comic or whoever definitely seems to have the position of like speculation about other people in and of itself is bad and nobody should ever talk about anybody. It's harmful. It's just something that keeps cropping up in the comic. It's like, never gossip about your friends. It's like, okay, Ned Flanders, I won't. Thanks. So Ngozi grew up in Texas. I don't know anything about her, like, you know, personal deal, really. But I was talking with someone recently about this topic, not as it relates to Check Please, but as just in general. I always thought that this was just like a weird personal take from Ngozi. Like, I guess I didn't really think about it in her context, because I am from New Jersey, where... Sure, I guess people think of gossip as bad, but culturally in the region, it's like, it's like complaining. You like speculate about local political corruption. What else is that but gossip? Like, I don't know. It's it's just in the fabric of that, of where I grew up and the culture I grew up in or my family or whatever, in a way that it was very part of how people talk to each other. But I was talking to someone else about this who grew up like in a very Christian environment in the South. In that particular world, gossip was like a sin. I didn't even know that was a sin in like Christianity, which I know about murder and adultery and stuff, but I didn't know about gossip. So I was surprised to hear that and to hear that it's framed in certain cultural contexts as this like very deep transgression against other people. So I don't know whether that at all, like that, that specific Texan context is like part of Ngozi's deal with this I don't actually know very much about and I don't care to know (laughs) too much about her personal life etc especially given some of the discussions we've had about southern culture and so on like I don't know I never thought about how that might inform the comics reading of what it means to talk about people as well Biddy starts the strip by gossiping so yeah I I think it's very much this like weird you use the word didactic I think it's interesting and and certainly possible, like within the realm of possibility, that's some sort of weird Southern Christianity teaching that I just simply am unaware of. But it's basically, it's like when it's Biddy and his mom doing it, A-okay. When it's anybody else in the comic doing it about Biddy or in a way that impacts Biddy, bad. Yeah, that's a good point. I thought something totally different was happening with Check Plays. There were two more years of the comic at this point, and I thought all of this was creating tension that would be resolved. And I guess, yeah, it it is doing that. It is creating tension, and the tension will be resolved. However, the tension will be resolved in about five seconds, and everything between Jack and Biddy will thenceforth be fine. I really thought that all of this was like layering in problems that Jack and Biddy would spend the rest of the comic solving. But it's not. So I guess I thought Ngozi was telling a story about how the fun, cheerful antics of, you know, coming of age novels or coming of age stories rather uh, have now been moved beyond and we're actually entering adulthood. And so like, the people we trust and love can betray us without meaning to. And this is part of marginalization and differentiation between people. And much as the rest of the hockey team has fetishized Jack's butt, secretly Jack was fetishizing Biddy's butt, which is to say that like, this is also an exploration of the logical conclusion of homoeroticism and gay attraction in hockey. You know, Check Please was going to begin to synthesize these threads of Kemp, of homophobia and Kent Parson and secrecy and privacy 
and begin to braid them together into a story that like not only dealt with the problems that had been set up about what was going on right now, but that would resolve the problems of Biddy's past in, you know, as in like peewee homophobia hockey. I said hockey, but I meant football. And Jack's past, Jack's depression and, you know, suicide attempt and and addiction. And then the story is like Biddy and Jack win. So it's a lot less complicated. This entire thing should not be in the comic basically i mean of course it should because we've talked about it for like three hours or whatever so um yeah oh, I mean, Jesus. super super interesting to me it's like the plot of this comic should have just revolved around like jack winning hockey and biddy figuring out what he wants to do with his life as he improves and becomes the captain of the hockey team like that should be the tension in the comic effectively like based on where it ends up going all of this stuff that's basically nipped in the bud pretty quickly about like homophobia and and all this other shit is not really a through line it hasn't really been visited since like the beginning of year one effectively at this point as far as i recall and the things that end up mattering in this comic are basically like it doesn't really say anything interesting about this actual relationship queerness trauma so yeah unfortunately even though you know sorry to this comic because i think it's like you know really riveting and fascinating and layered and textured and bizarre but it's just it's it's not really going anywhere it's just kind of like within five strips all this will effectively not matter and have been dispelled it's just not a very satisfying conclusion to this individual thread. I think this is so much part of the experience of a serially updated work of art is that like, oh, what happens next? Oh, what happens next? Oh, what's going to happen next? And the speculation in between the updates, as we've discussed many times. And then when you go back and read all of it together, Sometimes it ends up being a 19th century novel and like, you're like, okay, at least a lot happens. Sure. Whatever. And sometimes it ends up being, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I've talked about this before, but there was this serially updated Inception fanfic called Rule 10 that I was like really into in 2010. And I tried rereading it a couple years ago and it is, it, it is unreadable without the updated in the moment. And so, you know, that's so many serialized fanfics though like frankly yeah. that's serialized fanfics i've written like oh it's been 12 years <laughs> since i updated my fanfic i guess i'd better write forty-five thousand words where all these different things that people really want to see happen even though once it's part of the longer story you're like oh god this four hundred seventy-five thousand word fanfic where all these goddamn weird little fetishistic details are included, even though as a as a whole, it's a bad piece of writing. You know, people people want that forty five thousand word update, so you got to give it to them, and that's just how it goes. That's what serialized fanfic is. I mean, now that you said that, though, I'm thinking about nineteenth century novels and like, yeah, that is also what they are, isn't it? <laughs> No, Victorianists, get in touch. Yeah, let us know. I feel like that's something about the nature of serial updating art. And maybe there's something about privileging the entire, I don't know. I don't know how to say this because I do privilege the entire work 
as a whole text, you know, in some ways over the experience of the serial update, in part because Check, Please is so short. Like, I used to read, oh, fuck, some webcomic that has like one billion pages, who knows? And, you know, it's like basically impossible to read that whole thing because it's too fucking long. There's just too much of it. Why would you unless you're very obsessed with it? Homestuck? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> no, that's like a whole other, That's a, that also has one billion pages. But that, I don't, I mean, it's a webcomic, but I actually think that it works pretty well because of its like pose, whatever. That's for, that's a, let's get in touch with me for my Riverdale and Homestuck podcast. Okay. Like that's for another, another day. You can't take it as a whole text essentially because there's just too much. And so the way that you approach it is different, but because check please is so tight, you can, and because it's published in books, you like can take it as a whole text. So I guess it's like this question of, do you privilege the experience that like total overwhelming excitement of reading it as it updates and how satisfying that was versus the dissatisfaction of the final text? Is this a serially updating text? Is it a complete text? It's, it's, but I think part of it is that Ngozi treated it as a complete text, even as it was serially updating like as this thing that was completely planned out. So it's hard not to privilege that entire text. There's a moment in this comic where Biddy is like, oh, you left your hat here. We've already discussed it. But he grabs it and he puts it on Jack's head. And then Jack wears it as he is downstairs getting yelled at about his girlfriend. He's holding his Samwell hat that he had worn to the game in his hand and the hat that Biddy has put on his head is Falconer's Blue. And this in the comic is meant to symbolize that, you know, while he's been at this party, he's been reliving his identity as a Samwell student. However, now that he is done with all that, He's going back to his real life as a falconer, and that's sort of nice. But the more important thing that I want you to know is that Jack puts on a hat when he needs to do something important about his sexuality. Hats, famously, famously, everybody knows, are used to sort of like negotiate masculinity by gay men. <laughs> There's been a few interesting pieces of not quite scholarly, but relatively thoughtful writing about how gay men who, you know, want to like pass or come across as like not too fruity effectively use uh, baseball caps or as they're called often in Chef Please fandom snapbacks to uh, try to like communicate a certain posture and I think it's very interesting the way in which the queer male characters in this comic, especially Jack and Kent, use these hats. That's all. It's interesting. He's coming back downstairs. He can't seem too gay. And I guess it's successful because he gets accused of having a girlfriend. So he's got his hat on. And that's his sort of like cishet passing drag, basically. Just, just an interesting little touch. I read a blog post about this once. Yeah, it really heightens the dramatic irony, doesn't it? I didn't think about this before you brought up hat symbolism, which despite its fame and notoriety, I may never have thought about before. 
But I'm also thinking about the fact that because, as you mentioned, Biddy puts the hat on him in this posture where it's a bit more egalitarian or even Biddy has this like upper hand. It's something being bestowed by Biddy onto Jack, the sort of like adult bestowing or something. It's a marker of Biddy's relationship with Jack in some way. And it's really interesting then that he's wearing that hat while Shitty accuses him of having a girlfriend and he denies it. But it's it's also interesting that he chooses to keep this mark of Biddy on him as his like, look, I'm look, I'm hit. <laughs> like proof. Well, Tomato, here's the one thing that you need to know. If you had an erection, you could hang a hat on it. Wow, I understand so much about Don Draper now. Next time, 3.6. PB&J. I've been Secret, and you can find me at my famous Camilla... What's her name? (laughs) Let's start over. So I've been Secret, and you can find me at my famous Camilla Collins-inspired Tumblr, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or my other South Park-related, not Camilla Collins-adjacent Tumblr at S-K-R-T-O-M-G... Or I'm on uh, AO3 at Familiar, also not Camilla Collins related, except I combined it with Camilla to make Camilliar. What's what's your slightly less interesting story? Well, you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com, which, as I believe I've said before, comes from my other blog where I recently stopped writing so many horrible posts about how I'm sad so you can find me there I guess if you want the links at the top of tomato rights um and that blog name comes from my BFF Abby in sixth grade so uh, I'll tell you about that if you ever want to know it's probably in another episode of this podcast actually um it anyway, is it is yeah. but <laughs> yeah. in that episode you said seventh grade oh really it was well who can say middle school a confusing time anyway well, if people enjoyed all of this where can they find the rest of us yeah so you can find me uh on ao3 at tomato underscore greens and uh you can find our podcast on spotify or podbean i forgot what spotify was called for a second i'm sorry you can also find our website at checkdisplease.xyz and maybe someday on other platforms who can say All right. Well, thanks for enduring this one. We'll be back here next time for 3.6. PB&J. Penis button. (laughs) Juice. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. We'll be back here next time for 3.6. PB&J. Goodbye, tomato. Goodbye! Goodbye! Once a fox shit on my pizza. (laughs) For real? Yeah, I, during, during, like, the high pandemic, during early, early pandemic, I ordered a pizza from a place in London called Yard Sale Pizza. What is that? Doesn't matter. They sell ice cream sandwiches. And I was really excited to eat this pizza, but this was part of the part of the pandemic where 
you know, you wouldn't like open the door and accept a food delivery from somebody. You would like make them leave it outside your door and then you would come and get it. So I waited maybe like 30 seconds after the pizza had been put down and a fox had just taken a shit on the pizza box. And I talked to some people about this like over the years And many people have said to me that because it was just on the box, they would have just opened the box and taken out the pizza and eaten the pizza. I, on the other hand, picked it up and walked it straight to the dumpster. Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan.